Hey, Bonnie Crater, welcome to the Tech Bootcamp Podcast. Thank you for having me, Rich. So I have to let folks know that we've really been anxious to get you on this podcast for a long time. And there are a few folks that our audience reaches out to us and asks to get onto this podcast on a pretty regular basis. And I want you and our community to know that you're one of those people. We've probably had 30 or 40 inquiries over the course of the last couple of years where folks want to know about you and your story and your great work. So I just first want to let you know that. And I also want to thank you for taking the time out of your really busy schedule to join us. Well, it certainly is an honor uh, to uh, to hear that people want to hear my story. I, I have really good news for folks as well. Uh, my good friend, Nicole Bell, is actually going to be our co-host today. And folks have uh, have always uh, enjoyed Nicole and, and the work that she's done with us. And Nicole, why don't you say hi to the folks and, and just give us a brief background. You were just uh, co-hosting with me a couple of weeks ago, uh, but just give us, uh, uh, for the folks who are new to this episode or who, who hadn't heard uh, your story before, just uh, outline for folks uh, your background and some of the things you're doing in the in the community, Nicole. Yeah, so it's a pleasure to be here and to, to be talking to Bonnie and Rich. Um, I mean, I, like a lot of people, was kind of thrown into the tick-borne community uh, when my husband got sick. Um, I'm uh, an engineer by training, and so I really just started to try and dig in and try and understand it and pick it apart and figure out what was going on, and I got so frustrated, right? It was just a, it was a terrible experience that we had to live through, and um, the journey was so transformative. I wrote a book about it called What Lurks in the Woods um, about our story. Um, unfortunately, our journey didn't end well. Um, and my husband didn't, he had a neurological Lyme and ended up with early onset Alzheimer's disease. And, um, but that whole process was so transformative that I knew I had to do something with that information. And so I wrote the book. Um, now I'm actually also the chief business officer at Galaxy Diagnostics, helping to solve the problem of the inaccurate diagnostics that are out there. And then most recently, I have been working with Bonnie on a paper for the Center for Lyme Action, which we'll probably talk about at some point, um, to summarize the state of Lyme research. And so I think my journey is, uh, you know, now trying to figure out how to make it better for new patients and getting as active and connected as I can. This is so exciting. It is so exciting. So, Bonnie, let's, let's talk about first where, where you are currently, meaning where are you physically located, and, and talk to us about what organizations you are doing most of your work with today. We're gonna to talk about how you got there, but let's just uh, let the uh, the folks who are not yet familiar with you know um, you know the important role that you're playing in the community today. Yeah, so I'm, I'm sitting in my house in Portola Valley, California, which is a small town halfway between San Francisco and San Jose. And uh, uh, I uh, have a couple of kids and uh, work uh, on, a couple of organizations that I started with my friend, really good friend, Lori Woods. Um, and we started uh, Bay Area Lyme Foundation as well as the Center for Lyme Action together with a whole bunch of other people, uh, which whose uh, work I'm super grateful for. So let's talk about, let's talk about your background, uh, your childhood, where'd you, where'd you grow up? And uh, what was your vision for your future when you were, when you were making your way through, um, through your younger years? So I grew up in Virginia, and uh, as a high school kid, I was I loved science, and I really loved microbiology, and I ended up uh, going to Princeton and getting a biology degree. So I spent some time in New Jersey, and then um, I met my husband in college, and we moved to California in 1988, uh, and uh, I started uh, a career in tech because I was really I was just very kind of a curious person. So I ended up 
uh, being very curious about technology. And uh, my last uh, uh, real job was uh, I just sold my company. Uh, I was CEO of a software company called Full Circle Insights. And um, but along that journey, I had a couple of kids uh, and my daughter, Jen, was in a Girl Scout troop. And we had six moms and six girls in our little town in Portola Valley. The town is, you know, 5,000 people. It's pretty rural, right? There's, you know, 300 horses and I don't know how many, lots of, maybe, maybe double the number of chickens um, in our town. And um, we, uh, you know, it's like a small school system. Pretty much everybody knows each other. And uh, it's a special place where there's a lot of uh, people that uh, are very uh, inventive, and so when we saw a problem in our Girl Scout trip, so two of the moms of the Girl Scouts, uh, they got really sick uh, and they were diagnosed with Lyme disease when our daughters were around 11. And they were really sick, like crawling to the bathroom kind of sick. And we, we honestly thought they were dying. So um, literally the Girl Scout moms, you know, this is, this is like a Girl Scout thing. The Girl Scout moms got together and once a month we would... Uh, meet at a friend's house and we'd have a speaker come to teach us about Lyme disease because none of us knew anything about it. And uh, about three or four months into it, it turned out um, we knew each other well as moms and moms of our girls, but we didn't know each other's talents. So it turned out that one of um, one of the Girl Scout moms who was also sick with Lyme my friend Lori said, oh, my family does foundations. We should start a foundation. And I said, well, I start companies, so we should start, <laughs> I can help you. And um, another, another person said, yeah, I, I like to host parties. And anyway, so there, was, there were all these talents of people around us. And, it, and so we decided to start uh, Bay Area Lime Foundation at that time. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to hit the pause button there for a second because I want to learn more about the companies that you started and 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 how things developed uh, when you when you left uh, when you left Princeton. So you are you're an Ivy League grad um, with a degree in biology, and you said you had a passion for microbiology. So I'm assuming you knew something about Lyme disease before you made yourself out before you moved out west. Uh, n- not really. Uh, I. <laughs> I, I knew, um, I, you know, I, I liked, um, you know, I liked microbiology. I, I, um, I took a lot of classes in that area. Uh, I was, uh, you know, I was, was a kid that tried, you know, won the, won the science prize in high school because, you know, I was always running some experiments. I went to University of Richmond as a, as a teenager, and they let, let me use a lot of materials <laughs> in this lab to, uh, to do, run a bunch of experiments with. Anyway, um, so I just had a lot of curiosity. I ended up in the tech business uh, because I was also curious about this thing called computers, and um, I I uh, I kind of stuck with that for my uh, for my work career until this time when our friends got so sick with Lyme disease, and we decided to decide to start a foundation that would raise money and fund research projects. So you know, Bonnie, one of the things that I find shocking as as a as a native of Long Island or almost a native of Long Island I was I was born in New York City and then when we were two my parents moved out to Long Island ticks were always a part of our lives I I was always aware of ticks we were always pulling ticks off of us pulling ticks off our companion animals 
So when I when I speak to folks, um, especially someone like you who you know who grew up in Virginia, which also has uh, you know has there's a huge problem with Lyme disease in Virginia now. And certainly, alpha gal has taken off in uh, in Virginia. Yeah, right. I'm always I'm always surprised when folks tell me that they you know that they just weren't aware of you know these tick diseases. So were you not aware at all of ticks and tick diseases? Was it not a part of your 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 childhood and your and your college experience or were you aware of it, but just not aware that it could cause people to become chronically ill? I would say I had a very, very, very low awareness of the whole issue. So um, and let, let's again talk a little bit more about your education at, at, at Princeton. You went to one of the top schools in the country uh, and uh, and you majored in biology. Was was there any discussion about uh, ticks and, and tick diseases and, and the possibility of ticks being vectors to bring diseases from uh, the animal population to the human population? No, I, I not really. <laughs> that wasn't really part of my education. I, uh, I, I studied human evolution. I wrote my thesis on you know on human evolution and uh, was not really part of my part of my education. I still had an interest in microbiology, but it was it wasn't really a um, you know a feature. You know, talking about tick and tick, ticks and tick-borne disease was not a feature of my education for sure. So now, um, one of the things that I, that I'm really interested in is why you turn to the for-profit model as um, as a as a career model, right? You spent a lot of time in the not-for-profit model, in the foundational model, in the educational model, um, you know, in the research model. I mean, there are a lot of different models that are a part of this Lyme disease world, but you began your career in the for-profit model. So talk to us about uh, entrepreneurship and businesses and why that was the place where you thought your talents would, would best serve uh, you and your community. Well, um, I always had a... a idea that I wanted to start companies that um, I remember doing some job interviews that were unsuccessful when I was at Princeton. And I told the interviewer that I wanted to start my own business. And then I did not get the job. Anyway, <laughs> yeah, note to self, just don't say that. Don't tell your employer you may be a competitor. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I always had an interest in starting businesses. You know, uh, when I was at Princeton, we started a little hat company that was successful. We um, and I was oh, when I we moved uh, my my uh, my partner who became my husband. Um, uh, we moved to uh, outside of Washington D.C. Uh, I talked my way into getting jobs in the in the in the computer industry, which was called computers and not tech then, uh, right. computer industry then, and. Uh, uh, and uh, one day, one, a guy came to the to um, to the store that I was running. I, I ran a computer store. You know, we sold PCs and um, you know other kinds of computers. Anyway, so um, the guy came to the computer store and said, "Hey, you know, I, my wife and I are starting this business. Will you come install this thing and teach and set up a database and teach us how to use it?" So um, that wasn't that was. Uh, I didn't really know what I was doing, but but there were a lot of books on a shelf, so I read a lot of books and um, kind of self-taught and started a consulting business based on that. that That's knowledge. really cool. So so always always willing to take risks and always willing to uh, venture into new places to help folks that need the help that they um, that they needed. Yeah, I, I'm just uh, I'm basically a very curious person, and I've always liked to learn new things. So um, that and getting paid to learn things, I thought was a much better way than 
paying someone else to learn something. Certainly is, but it's also it's also a place where you can serve at the highest level, right? I mean, one of the things that we talk about in the in the community all the time is how, um, in many cases, folks who have Lyme disease are very critical of others who go into the into the uh, uh, entrepreneurial space. And the argument is, you know, you're essentially trying to make money on the backs of sick people. And our argument in response to that is that, you you know, A, there are some unique um, features to the entrepreneurial model. Most importantly, that you're serving directly and you're getting direct feedback from the folks who are who you're serving, because if you're not doing a good job, you're not going to get paid. And if you don't get paid, you're going to have to continue to get that feedback from folks in the community. So. Uh, I, you know, I like to build out that that process because I think in many cases, folks in the law community are hurting themselves by not working with folks in the entrepreneurial space. And we want to talk a little bit later. We're going to mm -hmm. we're going to talk, talk about this a little bit later about what how bringing things to market can only be brought through the entrepreneurial model. And and um, and I'm just interested in and again because you've been in so many different spaces, how 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 you believe that that was the best place for you to serve at the early stage of your career. Yeah. Uh and at Bay Area Lyme Foundation, we really leveraged, we leveraged the Silicon Valley model of entrepreneurship. Um, and when we started Bay Area Lyme Foundation, we believed that we were going to do seed funding. So, you know, when you start your company in Silicon Valley, you, you get the initial funding, it's called seed funding. And we wanted to, to we didn't have, you know, billions of dollars, we had some money, but it, uh, and we wanted to use that fund, that, um, that money to stimulate much, much more research and provide seed funding for early stage projects. So then those researchers could go to the NIH and get a lot more funding, you know, a lot more money than we, we could ever have, a lot more money uh, to, uh, to take that research. But our goal really was to develop products, right? You know, to, to provide seed funding for research that could be adopted that could be further funded by the NIH and then adopted by companies to bring to market. So that was, our, that was our entire vision. That is really that is really cool. And we're going to get there. We're gonna, let's, so let's move forward a little bit more in 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 your journey. So you and your husband at some point now move out to California. So what 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 called you to California? Um, and then we'll, I, I do want to build out a little bit more on uh, on your experiences as a as a, uh, a parent of a scout, and maybe I don't know if you were a scout leader or not, but let, let, I, I do want to build out a little bit more. But so you moved to California. Talk to us about that and, and how that experience so, uh, was for your family. Yeah, so um, I, uh, we got in the car. We said goodbye. My, my mom cried <laughs> because she didn't think she was ever going to see us again. Um, and we drove out, drove out to California because Chris uh, wanted to go to business school. So we moved to um, uh, Palo Alto. Um, and lived on the Stanford campus. Um, and uh, I found my, found a job at Oracle um, where I stayed for about 10 years and variety of different jobs and, um, you know, was uh, trained in all things tech at Oracle. That's really cool. You, you just found a job at Oracle. I just so happened to find one there. So uh, let's, let's talk There's about- There's a funny story about that, but I don't know if you're ready for that. Okay, no, give us, give us, give us, give us some insight because I, I, I want, I want to know how the Oracle experience and how, how this all <laughs> led to you, uh, you know, starting, starting, you know, the, these cool not-for-profits that you've started. So uh, uh, we had moved to California and we'd actually shipped all of our stuff out to California. Are you ready for my story here? Okay. We are. Shift all out to a friend of my, friend of uh, my my husband's sister in Oakland, and um, <laughs> uh, we we were driving across country and we're 
at Yosemite, not Yosemite, we were um, uh, at the other Yellowstone, the other, the other, the other Y park at Yellowstone. And we get a call from my mom. I'm like, uh-oh, these, they've died or something. Um, <laughs> we were very worried, but it was no, someone has broken into your stuff that's stored in California. So we zipped out from Yellowstone, you know, as fast as we could possibly get to Oakland. And it turned out our stuff was being stored in a broken down garage in a very bad neighborhood. And literally people were, <laughs> there's people, street people that were, um, going into the garage with their shopping carts, taking all of our stuff <laughs> and doing as they were. So <laughs> it was a little bit of a rough start. Um, <laughs> but, but so we gathered up all our things, put it, you know, rented a U-Haul, put it in the, in a van. And um, while we were, um, while we were there, um, we met a couple of grad students that went to Berkeley and I was looking at them with giving them a little side eye because they were the ones that were supposed to be supervising our things, which were getting stolen <laughs> by all the neighbors. Anyway, so, but one of them turned out to be a recruiter. Um, um, and, uh, <laughs> and basically that's how I got my job at Oracle. <laughs> I love that story. Yeah. So yeah, exchange all your stuff. You got a job. <laughs> yeah, I did get a job. Anyway, so we moved. We moved to uh, the Stanford campus. Chris went to work, um, and um, I went to work for Oracle. All right. So now let's let's talk about California and and the culture shock. And of course, um, you know most people believe that there's no Lyme disease in California, but little did uh, little did you know that uh, not only was there Lyme disease, but it was going to touch your family and um, and have a direct impact on on your daughter's scouting experience. So talk, talk to us about uh, scouting and why you thought that was an activity that would, uh, would be enriching for your, your child and, and how it became more than enriching or, or more enriching in a way than you thought it would. Yeah, so, uh, so uh, Jen um, was born in, uh, let's see, in, um, in 2001. And so it was around 20, 2010, that she was in this, uh, this scouting group. Um, she started off as a Brownie and then became a Girl Scout. And I was uh, very busy um, with, uh, with my career and various other hobbies. Um, but uh, we, we all made a point, the six, literally six moms and six girls of going on the camping trip and selling cookies and, you know, just, and doing some volunteer projects. Um, it wasn't a huge amount of time, but we had a lot, we actually had a lot of fun together. Um, it was a social group for us and, uh, the girls all, uh, you know, learned a little bit from their moms. So now, Bonnie, I, I have four daughters, all of whom were in scouts. And, um, you know, one of the things that I thought was interesting as the father and Lyme aware dad that I am is that despite, uh, you know, scouting be a, being a, an enriching experience for all four of my daughters. They never learned anything about ticks and they never learned anything about Lyme disease before they were going out on any of these outdoor um, events. Yeah, so, 100%. Yeah. So, and, and we're on Long Island. I mean, there, there are ticks everywhere. I mean, you, if you were sitting in my backyard with me, I'd be telling you, make sure you do a tick check when you come in because we have ticks everywhere. And the lone star ticks are really aggressive, yet you know, we, you know, there, there, there does not seem to be an element of, of the scouting experience where 
you know, this is this is a part of the, the training. Um, and that seems like that's the same case that, that you saw in, in California. My youngest daughter, by, by the way, is a year older than your daughter. So maybe things have changed. But certainly back, you know, back um, when when our children were young, uh, that just wasn't something that was available. So what, what, what's your reaction to that? Yeah, for, for sure. We went on a lot of camping trips. No one discussed anything about any ticks or anything. No, you know, we had, we had a little bug spray, um, but that was about it. So now build out for us before Nicole starts to take you through, uh, you know, your journey with starting the uh, the first and then the second not-for-profit that you were a part of. Um, build out for us uh, in some more detail, um, you know, what was happening with uh, with folks who were, were sick and ultimately uh, uh, diagnosed with Lyme disease. And was there this window where they were sick and they weren't able to participate, but they struggled to get a diagnosis? Yeah. Um... So our, our, our friends who were like these really smart, dynamic women uh, became very stricken um, with very bad symptoms, like could not get out of bed. Um, they were not, you know, they had a lot of brain fog and were not coherent. Uh, they lost tons of weight. Um, uh, at first they were happy about, but then they were, they were literally emaciated and they looked like heck. And then they were, we, th- we literally thought they were going to die. So um, the girls, um, all the girls became very aware of, of, of course, of Lyme disease. So that was a learning experience for the girls. But um, we felt uh, compelled that our friend, you know, our friends were so sick that we really needed to do something. Um, at first, it was just a minor commitment of, you know, kind of just learning about what to how we might be able to help them. But uh, uh, I remember sitting with one my uh, one friend and talking about how you know, how we would take care of her children when, when she died because she was so sick. And, um, so, uh, about month five in the, in the, our journey of, of our monthly set monthly two hour session with a doctor or a researcher, uh, someone who started a foundation, um, these different people that came as to, to tell us about, uh, Lyme disease. Um, uh, we realized that, uh, there was not a lot known. You know, like it felt to us that there was not a lot known about the disease. That there wasn't a, a lot of activity um, in this 2010, 2011 type timeframe that we were starting to learn about this. Um, and we felt that there uh, there weren't that there wasn't that much money, federal money that was being put into it. It didn't feel like there was. Um, uh, that doctors really had all the information they needed in order to be so, effective at, at doing anything to help our friends. Bonnie, before you get to the macro, let's stay with the micro for a minute, right? So, so okay. you you have this small, tight knit group of of, of folks: mm-hmm. six moms, yeah. six 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 uh, children, um, yeah. and two of the moms are getting very very sick, and um, and you don't know what is wrong with them. They don't know what is wrong with with, with them, and then you finally hear about this Lyme disease. How, how did how did who got diagnosed first without right. names, and and what was your reaction? Um, as a, you know, as a biologist uh, about uh, about this disease, Lyme disease that you didn't seem to know a whole lot about. Yeah. So uh, one one of our friends was diagnosed, and the other friend, we were like literally sitting around the kitchen table. Was at a after a Girl Scout event. Yeah. You know, uh, your symptoms your symptoms seem to be the same as mine. You should go get a Lyme test. And she did, and was diagnosed. And the second friend was diagnosed with Lyme disease. Now, Bonnie, is it your suspicion that? 
one or both of these women were bitten by ticks while you all were scouting together? Or do you think that there was something else? I don't think so. Um, they both shared a keen interest in equestrian activities. They both rode horses as a young child. And then uh, we, also, we also found out that one of them's uh, mom had Lyme disease and her aunt had Lyme disease. She, she actually, there was a lot of Lyme disease in her family. And we don't know if it was congenital or, or what, but um, there, was, uh, there was definitely a, hist- a family history of Lyme disease and also the, the equestrian angle as well. So now as, as uh, responsible uh, scouting parents, you now decide that you're going to reach out <laughs> to folks who have experience in, in, this, in this disease and you want this to be an enriching experience for your children. So you start bringing these like Lyme geeks to your scout meetings to give you, give you talks about Lyme. Talk to us about yeah. you know, how <laughs> that was inspired and how did the children respond to these folks yeah. coming in and giving these talks? Well, um, I don't know if the, I think the girls were um, off playing in another room while we were learning about <laughs> Lyme disease, actually. But we, we definitely updated them on what we found. Um, and so they became cu- acutely aware because, you know, two of the moms in the group were very sick. Yeah. So now Nicole's going to take you through now this the this personal experience that you had as the inspiration for going from the micro where you had, you know, really, really sick people who were you were all as a part of a close knit group to now recognizing as a result of not th- just their experiences, but the the uh, effort to try to turn this into an enriching experience for your children. You now start to see these macro issues that have to be dealt with. So I'll let Nicole take you through that. Well, I mean, I think what I love about your story so far is, is that, you know, each of you have these unique talents, which you you're presented with this problem. Right. And now all of a sudden you're saying, well, hey, I've, you know, my family sets up foundations and I'm an entrepreneur and I like to do event planning. And then you decide to just build the thing, right? And to go figure it out. And I mean, and I love, I think you had shared with me once a story about, you know, you're like, you're, you know, basically trying to get a Stanford, you know, scientist to go out and study this at a picnic table. Like, just tell that story about how you even started and even got the gumption to go and do something like that. Well, so, so I decided that we needed to go get, try to, you know, we were, we're next to this university, Stanford University. And I thought, oh my God, there's all these very smart people there. They, they, they study lots of disease problems. I'm sure there's someone there that wants to work on Lyme disease. And so I decided to, to um, you know, I did, my, did some research and I made myself a slide deck. So I'm the mom from Portola Valley, Girl Scout mom from Portola Valley. And I go, I start, you know, trying to network and poke around. So I go over and visit, you know, someone takes my meeting over at Stanford as a researcher and I start showing them my slides and like, what's what, you know, some, some ideas for research projects. And he says, Oh, um, you should go talk to Jay. (laughs) I'm like, who's Jay? Anyway. So that was uh, one of our first researchers that started working on the, on Lyme disease at Stanford, Dr. Uh, Jay. Rajadas. Um, and then of course I I was a I was also a polo player, so I had an equestrian thing going on with me, with me as well. And um so I um I we used to play polo with the Stanford polo team. So I asked some of my polo teammates who I knew were also biology majors and asked them about um who they knew. Did they, you know, are you doing any work on, you know, do you know anybody who's working on ticks or, you know, this on Lyme disease? And it turned out there was a um, 
there was a researcher that was doing tick collections in, in Portola Valley, like doing tick drags in Portola Valley. And so um, they, I was connected up, you know, by the kid, the Stanford kids with, with some of them. Anyway, it was, we were just sort of networked around and we, we found these, uh, found these people that were willing to start working on a couple of research projects on behalf of the foundation. Well, because I mean, at this time, right. And even, you know, still to this day, right. There's a lot of people that think, well, Lyme disease doesn't exist in certain parts of the country, right. And California was definitely at that time, one of the places where Lyme disease doesn't exist, right. You're not in the Northeast, yep. not yeah. there. Yeah. So like and, issue number yeah. one is to go figure that out, right. Why, yeah, did, that, why are people getting sick? And that was a, that was a big problem for our friends. Uh, one of our friends literally went to 50 doctors, you know, it's the same, that same story. They go to 50 doctors, can't get a diagnosis. Then they chat with their other friends and they suggest to take up a Lyme test and they've got, a, okay, now they're diagnosed with Lyme disease. So now they at least know what they've got. So that, you know, that in Northern California, particularly at that time, um, there, it was not only that um, doctors would say there's no Lyme disease. There were some people that said, oh, that's, it's, it, it, it had kind of a fraudulent tone to, to their, to, these are physicians suggesting that the whole thing is a fraud. Like, and I, I, I found it incredulous. So that's when I really knew that we had to get to work to try to educate people that this was a real disease. And yes, you can get it here in California. So the, one of the first projects that we wanted to fund was, oh, um, let's, you know, like, it seemed like, first of all, it seemed like we had an epidemic. Two of the six moms, that's, you know, a third of the moms were get, got Lyme disease. So we thought, oh my God, we have like an, a Lyme disease epidemic. So maybe the ticks are carrying Lyme disease at a very high rate here in California. So that was one of our first hypotheses. So um, that was one of the first studies that we funded was to do tick drags around, around our town to see if the, what the rate of prevalence of, the, of Borrelia burgdorferi was in the ticks to see if that was why we <laughs> seemed to have this problem with our friends. Um, and uh, so we were very motivated to just try to basically help our friends. In fact, that was our first um, <clears throat> uh, tagline was uh, everyone has a friend with Lyme. Yeah. So you get, so you find these scientists, you know, you kind of do your networking thing over at Stanford. You find these scientists. Fortunately, one of them had done tick drags, right? And so, mm -hmm. and that was your first project, right? Going mm -hmm. out and, and doing tick drags and seeing if these ticks in fact do harbor, you know, Borrelia burgdorferi, the bacteria causing Lyme disease. And so, and what did, so what did y'all find? And then how was that information received? Well, we, uh, yeah, we did tick drags uh, for many years in a row um, and all over the, all over the Bay area. Then we expanded outside the Bay, you know, the San Francisco Bay area um, into, we did one in Oregon, we did one in Texas, we did one in Minnesota. Anyway, we're, we were, we did trick drags in a bunch of different places. And uh, what we found is that in the Bay Area that there was, uh, it was very patchy. It's quite interesting actually. So hmm. you go to one park, right? And 0% of the ticks are infected with Borrelia burgdorferi. You go to another park and it's 20% wow. of the ticks are infected with Borrelia. And so we've, that, was, that was a very interesting finding because on average across the whole state of California it was about you know one to 2%. Hmm. But in the Bay Area, it was this very patchy condition. So if you're unlucky to get bit by the, in the patch that had the 20% uh, prevalence rate, um, that was a problem. But if you're lucky and you got bit in the 0%, you know, you're lucky. 
so that was that was a that was a very interesting and key finding that we found. So so how is this received, right? Because now you have evidence that shows that this bacteria is living in California that causes this, you know, quote unquote fraudulent disease. Right. <laughs> so I mean, how was that received by you know the scientific community, the medical community? Like, where did you go with that information? So um, we we decided to uh, use all of our ecology studies. So we we called all of our tick dragging and the related matters um, that we call those ecology studies. We decided to use that as our public relations campaign, and that worked had worked very well for us because um, um, there were um, there are many radio stations, TV stations, new newspapers that wanted to write articles about this phenomena that seemed rare, but it wasn't so rare and people were really suffering. So there was a, it was a very um, important um, and almost new story for, uh, for the news media. And they, um, so they, they actually picked it up and it became a way for us to promote and uh, promote education around Lyme disease um, and, and, um, and get people involved and try to help. Okay. So, you know, for any, any person or, you know, Girl Scout mom or entrepreneur, whatever, that would be an accomplishment in and of itself, right? To prove that, you know, a disease exists where it shouldn't. But of course, you don't stop there, right? You just, you decide to take Bay Area Lyme and do bigger, you know, things. So, so maybe talk about the founding of Bay Area Lyme and kind of that, the early days in the mission and what you guys were thinking. You said you were kind of thinking about using that entrepreneurial spirit to, to see businesses. Like how did that go from tick drags to entrepreneurial seating? Like yeah. tell us what that, how that evolved. Yeah. Um, so uh, we were fortunate enough uh, to get a grant of a $5 million grant to start the foundation. So that's the first thing. Okay. So we had, we had a foundational set of money to work with. So that's number one. Number two is that our original, our very original vision was to just educate people, educate people in our town because, you know, this is a we lived in a, a community which where you know people went to all sorts of fancy schools and had all sorts of fancy degrees, but um, most people did not know anything about Lyme disease, and so that was that was that was kind of originally what we thought we would be doing. But as we got into it and we all started reading, talking to people, we realized that there was, oh my gosh, there's no really good diagnostic. And if you get this disease, if you get bit by the tick the, and, they, and it happens to infect you with Borrelia burgdorferi and you don't get the antibiotics early on, it can stay with you forever for your entire life. And there's no good therapeutic. And so we found these two facts to be completely horrendous. And so um, over about six months into it, we, you know, maybe it was a year into it, we really got focusing on our mission, which was coined by Wendy Adams. I always like to give her credit for this because it's really clever actually, is to make Lyme disease easy to diagnose and simple to cure. I mean, Uh, it sounds so simple, but that is like, that's the challenge. It's, that's a ginormous wall and challenge, right? But it sounds so simple. It does sound very simple. But, uh, and I was also, I had a little bit of anger about this because I thought, oh my gosh, there's been antibiotics for a hundred years. Why don't any of the existing antibiotics work against Borrelia burgdorferi? Mm -hmm. What are the doctors doing? Why isn't anybody studying this? This is silly. Yep. Okay. So you have your mission, right? Now how to, you know, to make Lyme disease easy to diagnose and simple to cure. 
how do you, where do you go from there? Like, what was your next move? So then we, uh, then we really focused on trying to fund early stage projects mm-hmm. and leverage the Silicon Valley model, entrepreneurship model. So uh, uh, funding early stage projects so that, that there would be other funding organizations that could pick them up for later stage type funding and actually turn those ideas into products, diagnostics and therapies. So maybe, so, you know, maybe pick one of those projects and kind of give an example of one of your early fundings that's kind of, you know, been ongoing. Okay. Let's see. So put you on the spot or anything. Yeah, put, put you on the spot. Okay. <laughs> uh, okay, let's see. Um, uh, okay. So early on, um, uh, we had two... Uh, really brilliant people that uh, joined our organization, Wendy Adams and Karen Rollins. And they uh, partnered with some folks um, on the East Coast to try to dis- try to figure out why, you know, what were the things that were holding us back from actually having a good diagnostic? So they partnered up with these, with the, uh, with the government actually, NIST, the National Institute of Standards and Testing, um, and held a uh, a meeting. Um, this is a couple of years into into our after we founded it. Um, had a meeting to try to understand if what was really a, a factor in holding up um, researchers from actually creating diagnostics. And so um, there was a survey done, and it became very clear that one of the the factors that was really holding research back was just the availability of patient samples for Lyme disease. And so. Um, there were a couple of existing biobanks around the country, um, but they, uh, um, they were, many of them were being used privately for specific projects that were happening at that university. So the samples were not available, widely available to any researcher, you know, any who had a good project and just needed samples to try to create a good diagnostic. So we, uh, <clears throat> so it became clear that it, we needed to start a biobank. And um, we had a couple of false, you know, with, starting a biobank is not easy. Um, uh, it's very tricky to, uh, you have, you know, getting the protocols, getting the IRBs, getting the site set up. It's, it's a very complex operation. Uh, but we were fortunate to, uh, to find Liz Horn, who um, uh, was, a, was a PI in, and she had done set up biobanks for cancer. So this was right up her alley. And so she, she's been our PI for the Lyme disease biobank. Um, <clears throat> so f- uh, fast forward, that project is highly leveraged, right? So if you collect the samples, a lot of researchers can use those samples in projects that are all over the country, all over the United States. So when we started Bay Area Lyme Foundation, I think there's, you know, Karin actually did a study on this. So there's probably 10 or 15 viable um, uh, Lyme um, diagnostic projects around the United States. And the Lyme disease biobank has uh, supplied samples to over 80 projects now. So there's these, there are these 80 projects that are going on now. So the, the, the multiplier effect was really, really high on that um, by just um, making uh, patient samples uh, available to those researchers. So I love that you picked that as your example, because that's like my favorite thing as, you know, as somebody who believes 
wholeheartedly that diagnostics is the root of so many issues, right? Getting that accurate test that tells you exactly what bacteria or parasites or whatever you're harboring in your body is, is key, right? And if you're trying to develop a new diagnostic, you can't do that without samples that, you know, have been flagged and are known to have positives and negatives. You need positive controls, you need negative controls, you need to understand and have well-characterized patient samples that is just not available until, you know, like the, the Bay Area Lyme, you know, biobank uh, basically put together. And so I think that's huge. And, and, and to do that, and I love that it kind of came out of a hackathon where people are like, what's the problem and how can we solve it? I mean, that's, I think it's fantastic. Um, and so that is a crucial research. And now we have, you know, projects ongoing. We have the Limex challenge and, and all sorts of new diagnostic solutions coming out. And these biobanks are essential, right, to, to get that information and to, to know what you have. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm now fairly, you know, optimistic that we're, you know, I, 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 I believe that we're less than, you know, less than five years away now of, of having a good diagnostic, you know, that will probably be work, you know, probably complement the current serology tests that will help us diagnose patients much, much earlier and much, much better. Well, and the other thing that y'all are doing is, you know, providing that seed funding. And as part of that, you have this other program and initiative that I am a big fan of, which is the Emerging Leader Award, right? It's trying to get new yeah. researchers into the space and to kind of recruit new talent for, you know, showing that there's funding available. So talk a little bit about that program, how it started and, and where it is now. Well, as I say, um, there uh, and when we started the foundation, there are people that wanted to have parties. And they were good at having parties. <laughs> and so when you have a party and you're working to raise money for a disease space, it's good to award, you know, to have a public award um, and honor uh, folks that are doing great work in the space. And so um, that became part of our part of our agenda to really focus on uh, having uh, young researchers. Uh, in a very public award, these would be post postdocs or, you know, young young assistant professors um, in universities who are at the very beginning of their career, and really kick them off and hopefully make, hopefully get them started so they could have a career in solving our Lyme disease problem. So that was really our vision around it, um, and we were grateful for. Um, the various funders that we have had along the way that have funded the Emerging Leader Award, um, because it's been a great program, and many of those uh, many of those projects are still still ongoing um, and getting closer and closer to a diagnostic or therapy. And so, you know, going back to what you said earlier, you said the original vision, well, not the original vision, but the, the modified vision that you came to is to kind of provide seed funding, which then goes to get NIH funding, which then goes into companies to kind of fuel solutions into the space, right? But somewhere along the way, you realize that there was a challenge with that transition from seed to, the, to graduating. So what did you learn as you kind of went through this process? Well, one of one of the dynamics that was uh, that was happening was, um, you know, some of these projects would actually succeed, right? And so they no longer needed seed money; they needed bigger, much bigger grants. So we were we were able to accommodate some, but not all, right? We we really needed help, you know, funding sources to get these projects um, going to the next stage. And uh, you know, around 2017, 2018, I started thinking about this a lot and how 
um, that I started noticing around how the government funding was continued to be wrote flat. In fact, one one stat I noted it was actually on a in a few um, if you looked at looked at the funding it was actually in real dollars it was actually less funding now than it was in two thousand one. Mm. So yeah. the funding wasn't going up; it was actually going down. Yeah. And that, but the cases were, were tripling and quadruple. It, it didn't make any sense. Yep. So I thought, you know, we, we really need to do something about that. Um, and also, you know, Bayer Line Foundation can, can do a lot, but it, 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 uh, it needs, you know, there, it's a, you know, this is, takes a village to solve this problem. Um, and so we really, I felt that we really needed a companion organization to focus on in, increasing federal funding for Lyme and tick-borne disease research. And so um, uh, Bay Area Lyme Foundation allowed, allowed me to do a project, an experimental project. So, you know, we were all about experiments in our research. So we decided to do a, you know, um, experimental project to see if there was any interest by, by members of Congress to, in Lyme disease and whether they would be receptive to helping us increase federal funding. But um, along the way, I, I, um, I met a, a, a kind of a famous Congresswoman, Barbara Lee. She's uh, from, from uh, the Bay Area. Um, she's and, um, at an event. And I said, Barbara, you know, I'm trying to do this thing, you know, increase federal funding for Lyme disease. And I don't really know where to begin. She said, you need a lobbyist. You don't need a lot. You just need one. <laughs> anyway, I was happy to <laughs> I was happy to visit my brother, my brother Jeff, and um, oddly enough, his kids were just diagnosed with Lyme disease. You know, and I'm like Jeff. You know, I've been working on this for you know five or six years now. Um, and anyway, we had a discussion. It, and I didn't really know what he did for a living. This is my my little brother Jeff, who lives outside of Washington D.C. <laughs> and apparently he's, he, <laughs> I learned that he's a professional lobbyist and knew a lot about appropriations and funding and all that. And that's I, pretty hysterical I, that you didn't even know what he did. <laughs> yeah, not really. I didn't really know what he did. Um, I, <laughs> cause I, I was, you know, in the middle of this, you know, high tech thing and Silicon Valley, that whole thing, you know, and, I, and he, I knew he did something with the government. I didn't really know what it was. Anyway, so we we were chatting, and I said, "Well, do you think that you that one could, you know, um, you know, talk to Congress about and influence and try to get them to add more money for Lyme disease?" He says, "Yeah, yeah, that's that's how this all works, Bonnie." <laughs> so, anyway, so he uh, started educating me on on this, um, and um, uh, we, uh, so when I went back to, uh, to Barry Line Foundation, I said, yeah, my, my brother is available, is a lobbyist. We've been advised um, that we need a lobbyist. My brother's a lobbyist and he has two kids with Lyme disease. So he has a horse in this race and he is really interested in helping. And so, thus the Center for Lyme Action was born. Well, we, we did our study. We, my brother and I, we you know, created some materials and you know, we walked around the hill to, and talked and went to some different congressional offices. We made some appointments and some drop-ins. And we found we, we found that um, that members of Congress, both on the Senate and the House side, were actually quite interested uh, to help. 
and that this was a this was an area that they really wanted to you know spend some time on. It was an issue that they that they wanted to invest time in. So we were very encouraged. We gave our report back to Barry Alarm Foundation and Barry Alarm Foundation. Um, uh, and then we spent a long time trying to figure out how we should structure the organization. Should this lobbying effort be part of Barry Alarm Foundation or should it be a separate organization? And it was decided that we would create a separate organization that was not a 501c3, but a 501c4 that could do unlimited lobbying. Okay. Now the funding for a 501c4 is not tax deductible. So you have to find people that are willing to part with, um, part with money to fund this operation, right? Um, and not get a tax deduction for it. Okay. So now we felt that that was, uh, that was kind of a challenge, but um, we've, we seem to have risen, risen through, through, that, through that issue. But Barrier Line Foundation uh, spun off Center for Lime Action as a separate, separate organization. Um, and um, five individuals and foundations became the charter members of the organization, member-funded organization. And we, um, uh, we started organizing with our first event in October of 2019. And so describe that process, right? So you get a new organization and what's, what's your mission? I mean, your mission is to grow, you know, research funding for Lyme, I would imagine, but how do you go about achieving that mission? What are, what's your first steps? And, and about the same time, you know, I mean, the K Hagen tick act was brewing and, and all sorts of things. Like how did that all come together? Well, um, I, I feel like in my particular Lyme journey, although I've seen a lot of suffering and so on, I felt like there's been a lot of good luck along the way in, in a lot of serendipitous kinds of activities that have happened in my journey to try to help solve this problem. Uh, so when we, we had our event in October of 2019, we, um, we, we about, um, about 100 people came. Um, we had uh, speakers uh, from the House and the Senate that gave remarks. We had uh, a panel and so on. And our audience was, you know, was largely um, advocates, Lyme advocates who were dying to get to Washington to talk to members of Congress. But also we had some staff. And one of the staff that came uh, was uh, in Susan Collins's office, Senator Susan Collins from Maine. And as you may know, Maine is a highly, highly endemic state for Lyme disease, highly, highly endemic. And so it's a big problem um, for, uh, for the, from the main senators. Um, and they were both actually both main senators were very interested. So earlier that year, and we, you know, we were new at this, <laughs> so we didn't actually know, but the K Hagen tick act, or that there, there was, there were several pieces of legislation that had been introduced. Um, and Susan Collins had introduced a piece of legislation that was based on legislation from Chris Smith in the house, um, which he had introduced many times before. And um, so we, we, uh, we had our event and then the next day we were walking around the hill and we got a call from Senator Collins's office and they asked us to come, uh, come, come visit their office so they could talk to us about the Tick Act that they had created. And um, so, uh, we, so it was myself and my brother Jeff and my, my dear friend Lori Woods who we all went, we were having an exciting time going over to the Senate 
and Senate's office building and we went to Senator Collins's office and we we uh, we chatted with the staff and they explained to us that they needed they had this um, bill and they had three co-sponsors and they needed more co-sponsors so when you're trying to get a bill done um, what you do is you ask your colleagues in the in your in say that if you're in the in the Senate in this case to formally say I think this bill is a good idea and that's called being a co-sponsor and so, um, uh, so we were given our, after our event, we had a, we thought, oh, wow, this is great. We're in business. We have a, a project, a real project to work on that will, that will help raise visibility for Lyme and tick-borne disease. And so um, we, uh, the advocates were very, very responsive and they, uh, they called and emailed their senators in various states and uh, we ended up with 33 co-sponsors for that bill, which is a lot of co-sponsors. So that means a third of the Senate is saying, hey, I think this bill is a good idea. Yeah. But there's a lot of momentum for this bill. And then really sadly, while we were in the middle of this, so it was we had our event in October. Um, shortly thereafter, one of the senators, former senators, Kay Hagan, died. Yeah, from North Carolina, my uh-huh. state. Yes. Yeah, from your state. Exactly. Yes. Of a tick-borne illness, and so um, so the bill was renamed the Kahagan Tick Act, yeah. and um, the bill ended up um, becoming part of the appropriations bill for uh, for that year. So it was for FY FY twenty, um, and it was signed into law at the end of December. So this never happens. Okay, the thing that I'm just telling you never happens in a million years. We have an event. <laughs> the staff calls you in, says, I, we have a bill that we're trying to get co-sponsors. You get 33 co-sponsors on the bill. That never happens either. The bill is renamed, sadly, for a former senator who dies. From Powassan virus. Yeah, Powassan um, virus, right. Yep. Exactly. And, um, and then literally two months after you learn about this, uh, this bill, it's passed into law. Okay, that never happens. So we felt like we were um, it, it was a big celebration because, um, you know, bills take years and years and many, most do not get passed at all. So we felt that this was a, this was a very good sign and we could continue on. Um, so thanks for asking about that. Well, and I'm going to, I'm going to hand it back to Rich soon because I know he's dying to ask you like a bajillion questions. Um, but, um, but before I do that, I want to ask a question because there's a theme through your story that I just I love. And it's about, you know, the people that are affected kind of using their talents, right? So you've got these three moms, you know, and and the the moms and your Girl Scout troop that are all good at different things and adding, then you've got your brother that you don't even know what he does for a living. And it just happens that he's a lobbyist when you exactly need a lobbyist at that point in time in your journey. And so you've got all these people that are using their random talents that have their lives impacted by tick-borne illness. And so I guess, I want to ask you for, you know, from a personal perspective and for maybe anybody else who has a situation, how do you, like, what advice would you give to somebody who has, you know, been in a situation where their life gets totally turned upside down by tick-borne illness, by Lyme and so forth, and they want to make a difference, right? But you don't necessarily know how your talents are going to fit in and make a difference. Mm -hmm. Like, what advice would you give to them? Because, I mean, there's, there's so much to your story and with what you've done 
And some of it, like you said, is luck. Some of it is, is, is like hard work and just being where you are. But I guess what would your thoughts be for that person who's trying to figure out where to take their journey? Well, I've met so many wonderful people along the way. Um, and everybody's got a talent. Um, their story is their talent, or maybe they're good at organizing something, or maybe they're good at very detailed descriptions and writing those things down. Um, maybe that they're, maybe they're good at organizing parties, maybe, but everyone has a talent and, um, Lyme disease needs your talent, whatever it is, we need it. And there's loads of organizations that can use your talent. Um, we, uh, we're lucky enough, we have 2,000 dedicated advocates across the country at Center for Lyme Action who dedicate their time and talent to talk to their senators, write their Congress folks, and be active. And that's their, that's their gift and their, uh, uh, and their talent that they provide for um, their, themselves, their family, their friends that are suffering from this disease. So everyone's got something they can they can offer, and there's a lot of different organizations that um, that that you can apply your talent to. That is really powerful, Bonnie, because every human being is unique and special. Every one of us has some special God-given talent that we can lend to uh, to any cause. And one of the things we see in the in the Lyme community, because contribution is a basic human need. But when folks are really sick and and, and they and they're just trying to get a diagnosis and trying to get a handle on um, you know what they need to do in order to be able to try to get on 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 a journey to recovery, uh, they feel like they they can't contribute. And I think it's really powerful that you have done so much and offered so many different opportunities for folks in the Lyme disease community where they can find a place where they can get that basic human need of contribution. Um, by joining one of the many efforts that you've you've created. So talk to us a little bit about how, um, you know, contribution is a basic human need, how that is often taken away from people with Lyme disease and how so much of what you've been able to accomplish uh, has been the result of, of uh, sick people contributing to this cause. Yeah. One, um, I'm a big believer in values. When you start an organization, it's kind of like, how do you show up? And one of our key values is be, to be humane as an organization for Center for Lyme Action. And um, because there's a lot of sick people out there and, but not everybody's sick all the time with Lyme disease. Um, when you wake up and you have Lyme disease, you might have a really good day and you might feel good. And that's a great day to do something. But if, you, if you're not feeling well, we, want, we understand. And you, know, you gotta put your own mask on first and take care of yourself so that you can make a, can make a contribution. But I've also seen people that um, have gone through this journey and it's very therapeutic for, for them. They find very, a lot of joy at making a contribution and tried in, in an effort to try to make sure that nobody else has to go through what they've gone through. And that's also very powerful. It is very powerful emotionally and spiritually to be able to use your talents, right? And so yeah. many people feel like they can't use their talents because they're uh, you know, the, so many opportunities have been taken away from them because of their illness, but you have created a place where people can dedicate their talents and uh, and 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 do what God has created them to do. And, and, and that is really helpful on a healing journey. So I, I want to thank you for that. And I want to thank you for doing that. And I, I think it's one of the reasons why so many people are trying to get us to get you onto this podcast, because you've helped so many people in so many different ways 
and, and many people just directly on their healing journey because you gave them an opportunity to contribute and do what it is that they were created to do. Yeah, and um, but and the the other part about Center for Lyme Action is um, I can't, I can't do this by myself. It is impossible. We have Lyme disease in all 50 states. We need people from all 50 states. We need people from, from all the 435 <laughs> folks in Congress. Um, and um, so it really takes a village. So we are so appreciative of this group effort. You know, uh, one of the things that I noticed when I first started getting involved in this is that a lot of the Lyme groups um, really operated really, really independently. Um, and uh, Center for Lyme Action has been a place where, you know, it didn't doesn't matter what organization you're affiliated with. We ex everybody is welcome because um, we're all starting trying to solve the same problem together. And so we have over 50, you know, representatives from over 50 different Lyme organizations that participate uh, in our various programs that we run uh, to help grow federal funding for Lyme disease. So we're at the accomplishment phase of our podcast, and I'd like to talk to you about some of the accomplishments um, that Nicole has touched on, but in a little more detail. So I, I think what has made uh, Bonnie the, you know, the star in the community, I think is probably more the fly-ins than anything else. Uh, that's when everybody seems to be talking about you and talking about, uh, you know, your, your organization. So talk to us about the fly-ins and, and, and why they are so effective and why it's important from the standpoint of the way our government functions for folks to fly in from everywhere uh, because their senators and their, their uh, members of the House are more likely to be supportive of your work if their constituents who live in their districts are coming and participating in the fly-in. Yeah, so the, the fly-in is uh, something I learned about from my brother, who I didn't know what he did. <laughs> and uh, when I was early, early days, I was saying, okay, so how do we do this? What's the best, what's their best practice? He said, well, uh, the people that are really good at this have a fly-in. What's that? And um, the, the word fly-in would mean um, that you actually, you get on an airplane and you fly to Washington, D.C. on a certain day. Uh, you meet as a group and then you kind of fan out to, um, to talk to your your member of Congress and your two senators. And uh, the organization functions to help organize those meetings. So it's setting the, setting the meetings. The, the reason that this is so important is, believe it or not, we all live in this very cynical world, but believe it or not, your members of Congress care about what you have to say. They actually do. And the people that work for them, their staff are paid to listen and hear what you have to say. So you will, you know, nine times nine times out of ten, you will get a receptive audience to what you what you have to say, particularly if you're in uh, if you're a Lyme disease patient. And so uh, uh, we we started off, uh, you know, literally with you know I don't know less than hundred people who were able to do this and able to fly in. So we our first uh, fly in was in February of 2020. Um, Remember, 2020 was just before the pan pandemic started. So our fly-in just snuck right in there, right before the pandemic started. And we got a first taste of what it was like to run an in-person fly-in. Um, we were lucky we had Senator Collins. She was very grateful for all of us, right? She came and spoke because we had just helped her 
passed the Kahig and Tick Act, because literally without the without these advocates, right? She uh, she would not have had that piece of legislation passed. It just wouldn't have happened because it was so hard to get those co-sponsors. But with all the all the activity from the advocates, it happened. But anyway, we had we had in February of 2020, we had our first fly-in. We hold the fly-in at a time right after the president's budget is introduced to Congress. So this is something we all learn in grade school, but forget um, that the president gathers all the budget information and presents the budget and introduces a budget to Congress as the president's budget. And most of the time that serves as the baseline for, uh, uh, for what, um, what the, the appropriations bills will be. At least it's very significant input. And so we hold the fly-in right at the beginning of this budget process. So that's, that's, uh, that's on purpose. And um, at what happens at the fly-in is um, each person is given a set of materials and we do a training ahead of time, right? So each person is getting a set of materials we, and we train uh, folks on our appropriations asks. So we'll have five or six asks. So these are areas where we're asking the members of Congress to support appropriations increases uh, for various programs in the government. So Bonnie, let's, but let me ask you to pause there for a second. Let's build yeah. out this appropriation process and why it's so important, right? It's because yeah. one, one of the things that uh, I understand that motivated you to, to start this, this offshoot uh, not-for-profit, um, the, the C4, uh, was that there were many other diseases, including vector-borne diseases, that were that were being funded, and the research uh, to study those diseases was being funded at a substantially greater rate than Lyme disease. So, can you give us some uh, some contrast between um, how much money was available before you started your work for Lyme disease research versus um, other vector-borne diseases and AIDS? Yeah. For yeah. So. Um... Uh, the the deal with um, with Lyme disease is it's incredibly underfunded on a per patient rate. So um, you know the the latest numbers are in our are in Nicole's paper, the state of Lyme disease research. But literally, um, you know, uh, other infectious diseases like West Nile and malaria are funded at you know thousand times or two, you know two thousand times more than, um, than Lyme disease on a per patient basis. And so um, we, we can make an argument that this is a super underfunded disease, super, super underfunded disease. And that's very compelling, um, even for people that don't want to increase the federal, federal spending, that you're saying, look, more since 1994, almost four times, we have four times the number of reported cases. And yet, um, Lyme disease continues to be underspended for these other less, uh, you know, less common diseases. So that's one of the major, major arguments that we make. So one of the things I think is really brilliant about your story and the way that you've used every model available to bring it together under this umbrella now that's that's um, allowing us to move forward, right? Because because when you when you are underfunded um, from a governmental standpoint, then you're not getting research. If you don't get, because of the lifeblood of research at universities is going to be funding that's available and grant money that's available. The right. lifeblood of graduate students 
ultimately developing a career in a particular uh, area of study is going to be the availability of grant money so that they can fund their grants, you know, they can fund their research and do their research. So why don't you talk a little bit about why it's so important to make sure that it's not an underfunded disease, not to take away from the other, you know, the other diseases and their advocates that have been successful and the AIDS right. model is a brilliant model because they did the same thing that you did um, with using using for profits and not for profits and research and education and 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 the advocacy but without having the governmental uh, resources available we're not going to have the researchers or the research done that's necessary to overcome the billions of dollars of losses that, that our society is suffering as a result of millions yeah. of people suffering from these chronic diseases. Yeah, so if you're a grad student, right, and you're in one of these uh, life sciences areas, uh, where are you gonna make a career and how are you going to fund, and you wanna be a researcher as your career, where are you going to, what, where are you going to you know, place your effort? Well, right now, probably cancer because cancer is funded at over $50 billion a year and that's where the big money is. So uh, having enough money, right? And enough regular funding to, uh, to pay a young researchers who will eventually make a career out of Lyme disease is really, really important because you have to have, you know, it requires, this is gonna re require consistent effort by really smart people in really good labs across the country to be able to do it. And so that's why, um, that's why the funding, um, uh, NIH of course is the biggest level of funding, but, um, and that funding has increased almost, almost fourfold uh, from, let's say when we started in FY20, I'm just looking at a piece of paper here, uh, so I get it right, um, uh, is, um, was about, uh, uh, 40, 40 million, including, including tick-borne diseases is now is up to 119 million. Yeah. So that's good. Yeah. And, but this isn't, this is not my work. This is the work of literally 2000 people across the country. We're all working together, all, all making phone calls and, you know, working as a team to talk to the right people, to get the, the right attention, to get those uh, get those dollars in place. We're, we're not going to thank you for all the work. We're certainly going to thank you for your vision and your leadership, right? I mean, you know, but for your vision and but for your leadership, these 2,000 people would not be able to dedicate all their talents and make the contributions they're making. So uh, at least allow us to give you a little pat on okay. the back uh, <laughs> if if we can. Okay, well, okay. So that's that's my talent is organizing our crew into uh, a group of folks that uh, that are effective at making this happen. One of the other areas that I wanted to talk to you about is not just the public research dollars that, um, you know, your uh, visionary leadership has uh, has been able to acquire, but also the private research dollars and the importance of having private research dollars, in some cases as seed money, and in some cases as um, money that will pay for a portion or all of the research. So talk about the importance of of, of the private research dollars in this uh, in this space. Yeah, uh, because the big dollars all come from the NIH, basically, for research in the United States. Um, in order to to in order to qualify for a grant from the NIH, you have to have some basic data around your idea, and without that basic data, it's really really hard to get a grant from the NIH. And so that is the role, the cri so critical role 
that a number of private foundations have played is to basically create a at least a small pool, hopefully a small and that growing rapidly <laughs> um, pool of folks um, who are exceptional researchers who've been able to get small, at least small amounts of funding to get the basic data to prove out early ideas that they have for a, a diagnostic or a therapy. And so uh, that's the critical role that the private foundations have played. And there's well over, over the last 10 years, there's well over $100 million that have been put in by private foundations into, uh, into Lyme disease, Lyme and tick-borne disease research. And that role you know, cannot be underscored enough um, to actually provide the, the basics. Um, I was really excited to see an NIH grant that was recently announced that announced five researchers that are working on what we call persistent Lyme disease, but other people call post-treatment Lyme disease. And we can talk about that, but um, persistent Lyme disease uh, grants. And uh, all five of those researchers were funded in some way by Barry Lyme Foundation. So they, Barry Lyme Foundation was involved early on in their, in their early studies. And now those folks are going on to get R01 grants, which is, you know, five-year, you know, it's a multi-year grant. Um, these are the these are the big grants that um, those kinds of labs hope for. All right, so all of these different um, um, organizations and tools have been layered together by you in your vision to put us in a position where um, we are uh, getting governmental resources, uh, not certainly not enough, but more and more of them that are necessary to uh, to develop research. But that wouldn't be necessary, but for the private and foundational work that was that was being done, which was not would not be available, um, but for um, you know some of the tools that you developed as an entrepreneur or somebody who had worked in the entrepreneurial space and built that into the. Um, not-for-profit and then foundational space. So talk to us about how you layered all of that together and it became like a thousand points of light, which you're now getting to this, getting us to the place where you are certainly very optimistic about where we're going to be with uh, diagnostic testing in the, in the near future. And I want to talk a little bit about this report that, you know, that, that I'm just fascinated with that uh, your organi organization had funded and, and, and Nicole had, had drafted and how that's going to be an important piece of the optimism I think many of us have with um, with the direction that um, tick-borne illnesses and 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 uh, recovery tools are are are, are coming to. So my, my question is, talk to us about how you layered all of this together to get you to the point where we're now getting the research that's making you optimistic that we're going to have a uh, a diagnostic, I guess a great diagnostic tool within the next five years. There's uh, just been an enormous expansion in the number of publications, the number of people who have been working on um, Lyme disease research over the last term, uh, last 10 years. And with that, you know, my feeling is like, okay, something good has to happen from this. Uh, it really starts with diagnostics um, and therape therapeutics will probably follow. That's not what we all want to hear because we have people that are our friends uh, and family members that are, that are sick with Lyme and tick-borne disease. But the diagnostic part is so critical um, that uh, because it's the key for actually getting therapeutics. Uh, in uh, 2015, 2016, I worked on a project to bury a Lyme Foundation to try to figure out if we could have a, 
uh, standardized clinical trial protocol that would work, uh, that could be, you know, become a standard that could be used in clinical trials. And uh, because the, when you design a clinical trial, and, you know, of course, I'm kind of, I'm not the expert in this area, but I learned a little bit about it. But when you design a clinical trial, you need to have um, met, uh, designed outcome measures. And if you don't have those outcome measures uh, defined in a very um, uh, very defined fashion, it's really hard to prove whether your patient got well or not. So it's very hard to develop therapeutics without a good diagnostic. So if you look at AIDS, there was a diagnostic for AIDS. And so you could tell whether the, whether different therapies were going to work or not. Uh, and so because um, the symptoms of people, particularly with the chronic condition for Lyme disease, um, uh, the, the symptoms are so varied. And the only consistent one is pain across all, all of those symptoms. Uh, uh, the types of tests, types of interview level testing um, doesn't, doesn't really give you a clear clear outcome measures. So the, the importance of diagnostics cannot be underscored. And the fact that there are these 80 projects going on in the United States, that there's this prize challenge called Lyme X, which we're very grateful for the Cohen Foundation for continuing to, to, continuing to support and fund. Um, the fact that it's not just universities, but it's also um, uh, a bio, you know, diagnostic businesses that- Bio labs, yeah. Yeah, these biotech businesses that are that are investing in this area, uh, the fact that so this that this ecosystem is, seems to be coming coming together um, gives me great optimism that something good will happen. So another accomplishment we just started to tease a little bit about is uh, is this paper that um, that Nicole had developed for you. So Bonnie, why don't you talk to us a little bit about um, about the paper and uh, and why. Um, you and your organization uh, selected Nicole Bell to do the work. So one of the uh, one of the areas that's this is a very complex disease area, and uh, people get sick real quickly, and they and the um, the information that's out there trying to really summarize what is available for Lyme patients is oftentimes scattered, uh, conflicting information. So at Center for Lyme Action, we wanted to produce a public policy paper that would be available for the public, but also help us in our mission to grow federal funding for Lyme, Lyme and tick-borne disease. Um, that would provide a clear explanation of this is where we are right now in Lyme disease research. So our vision was to create a paper that would summarize all the research you know, all the relevant research that um, is publicly available. There's a lot of stuff that's not publicly available, but all the stuff that's publicly available and summarize that into a coherent paper that would um, uh, that would summarize the state of Lyme disease research. And uh, I, I, I ran across Nicole. How did, how did I meet you, Nicole? I don't even know. How did I meet you? So actually, so, you know, Ali Moresco is someone that, you know, I know Rick and Matt love and have interviewed multiple times. And so I actually didn't connect with Ali, but I connected with her mom, Linda, 
Oh, um, social media. And so I talked to her and we had a conversation and she was like, you know what? I need to introduce you to Bonnie. <laughs> and so she was the one that connected us. Um, and then I sent you my book and then we kind of took it from there. Oh uh, yeah. I remember reading your book, Nicole, in like a day. I was, <laughs> it was so compelling. I'm like, oh my God, this person can write. And it's <laughs> such a terrible story anyway. Um, but um, super compelling um, writing. And I thought, okay, um, yeah, maybe Nicole can write this, <laughs> write this paper for us because it is a, it's a very complex area and um, to try to tackle, to write a summary paper like this. Yeah. So, so Bonnie, yeah, Bonnie comes to me and she's like, you know, Hey, I have this, this project to summarize all of Lyme disease research. Do you want to take it on? <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's a huge project. I'm not sure I can do that. Um, but, you know, we talked it over. And I think that at the end of the day, um, I, I realized it was something that I had to do because this was what I was looking for when I was, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I'm an engineer. I wanted to dig in. I went on PubMed, you know, where all the, the papers are. And I started reading them. And that conflict and that confusion that Bonnie talked about, I experienced it because I was trying to figure out what are the best treatments? And then you, you read some papers and they say persistent Lyme doesn't exist. And it's all, you know, fraudulent as, you know, as we had talked earlier. And then you read other papers and they say, oh no, there's, you know, there's these persister cells and they're resistant to antibiotics. And as a, as a patient trying to, or a, a caregiver, sorry, trying to figure it out, I had no idea. And so, um, you know, so at the end of the day, this was what I had wanted to do. But as a caregiver, I didn't have the time or frank, frankly, the mental capacity to go ahead and do that. Um, and then also, I think I was encouraged to take it on because of all the hard work that had been done by the Federal Tick-Borne Disease Working Group and, you know, and other, you know, summary groups that had gotten together and, and just amassed all the latest and greatest of information, the NIH strategic plan for tick-borne disease, like there were all these infrastructure that were already in place that I, I knew I could use as a foundation. And then, um, so I decided to say yes. And that's kind of where we went from there. And it is a great, it is a great document. So Bonnie, let's talk about the, the, the dual uh, paths that, um, that Nicole seems to have been able to travel down with, uh, with writing this, what I consider a brilliant uh, paper. And I'm looking at it from, I think, a very different perspective uh, than you are, Bonnie. So let's talk about your path first. I mean, your goal with this paper was to have a policy paper that you would use as part of your advocacy work for um, members of Congress, both the House and the Senate, and their staff. So can you first talk about that piece of, of that goal that you had set for Nicole and, and how, uh, how well you believe she's accomplished that goal? Yeah, so uh, because if you think about it, you're, say you're a staff member working for one of these members of Congress, and even if you are a health LA, that's a health legislative assistant associate, um, you have, think of all the issues that you, even just this one policy area that you have to know about. And so knowing about Lyme disease is really, really hard. So one of the functions of advocacy groups with Congress, and it's a very important function, is to provide education materials for Congress so that they can learn about these different issues. And so we wanted to create um, a paper that would be that would serve the public for public uh, consumption um, uh, and education, as well as serve as a policy paper uh, for an edu policy and education paper for the staff 
that has, you know, many, many, many disease issues that they are looking, looking at. Um, so they would have a place to, you know, to consume this information in a, you know, a consumable way um, and become educated on the issue. So that was the goal of the paper. So uh, if I can just, just develop this a little bit further with you. So the goal is to make sure that you have a very complex disease with a large set of issues set out in a with an outline that would be understandable to someone who doesn't have Lyme disease or doesn't have a family member with Lyme disease, but will be in a position where they're making decisions or recommendations to the people who are making decisions about what should or shouldn't be a part of an appropriations bill and how much money should be made available to these research efforts. That is correct. Uh, the, st- the function of the staff in these offices is to provide you know, extra brain power and, and uh, recommendation power for those uh, congressional offices. And if they don't have the information, they can't make the recommendation. So that's why providing the materials and then also the other communications around the materials is so important to educate these folks that they know, yeah, we need to have more money for Lyme disease. So let's talk about the other path uh, and the path that I was most interested in when I read the d- document. Um, as, uh, as a podcast host of a uh, Lyme disease podcast, where we've interviewed over 400 people, uh, I've read well over 50 books on this topic and, um, and quite frankly has, um, have become enmeshed in, in, in trying to come up with um, information for people who are on the journey, especially people who are new to the journey, And what I've often been frustrated by is having the ability to point to one book or one podcast or one tool that I'd like to give to someone who's new on the journey or a caretaker of a person who's new on the journey. And I think you folks have have developed that. I mean, I I think it's here with with this paper that Nicole has written for your organization. Uh, I think we have, I I think the, the index is just brilliantly um, developed. I think the very clear way that you have defined so many of the important topics, or maybe all of the important topics that we're trying to trying to manage. One one that jumps out at me was the discussion of uh, congenital Lyme, for example, um, or neurological Lyme, or 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 Lyme carditis, or some of these some of these topics that are that are so important. And it was just so clearly outlined. The frameworks are so um, so. Uh, I think well developed, and I think the 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 information was presented in a very clear fashion. So, Bonnie, why don't you talk to us a little bit about that other path or that other group of people that will benefit from the work that you folks have done together? Yeah. So, uh, producing the paper, the the paper was funded by the Driscoll Family Foundation. So, we want to just recognize them for for their awesome contribution to this effort. Yes, thank you. Uh, and and they um, um, as a the, the main purpose of the of the paper is is for public cons- is for public consumption um, and to create a paper that summarizes the state of Lyme disease research. And um, I was lucky enough to meet Nicole um, through one of our advocates, Linda Moresco. So that, that was great. Um, who has uh, this has a you know particular set of talents. And again, this is about all about the people and all their different talents. But has the talent to take a very complex subject and make it understandable for regular folks that are just want the information and need it in a clear fashion. So um, I agree with you. I think Nicole hit it out out of the park. And um, I was super excited when I read this incredibly good piece of work. 
Yeah, and, and, and we certainly want to encourage folks who are listening to this podcast to, uh, to download the paper. And, um, and we, we do have a special announcement that we're going to make now. Uh, uh, and, and the first thing is, you know, we here at Tick Bootcamp know that, um, that it's very difficult in some cases for folks uh, to consume information in, uh, in different formats, right? We, we actually, this podcast is actually an audio-only podcast because when my co-host Matt uh, Sabatello was at, um, you know, at the most challenging uh, part of his journey. He was so neurologically impaired, he could not watch TV. He couldn't watch a screen. You know, it, it, the, the, his, he was so light sensitive that he couldn't watch, uh, watch even a video. So he insisted that we do an audio only podcast so that we could make this available to people um, who, who were neurolog neurologically impaired the way he was. But we're actually, we're actually pivoting over and we're gonna start doing some more uh, video. Uh, and and uh, one of the things that we're going to do, I, I think as our first video effort, is we're going to try to turn um, this paper into a series of podcast um, interviews that I think we're gonna call the, no, no, <laughs> the, the Nicole Bell, I'm stuttering here, Nicole, Nicole, Nicole Bell series. We're gonna have Nicole break down this paper into a series of, of, of um, video podcasts and audio podcasts so that if folks um, can't read this um, because of where they are in, in their journey, uh, but with, by the way, I want folks to download it if you can read it, but we're also going to make it available in other formats. So Nicole, uh, I've now publicly outed you uh, and I, and I, before the podcast, I promised I wouldn't, but now, now that I have to so talk to us about, um, about, uh, you know, reformatting this so that it can be available to other folks on the journey who may have some impairment issues and, and wouldn't be able to read uh, your report. Well, I mean, I think one of the goals that Bonnie and I talked about really early on is I'm a very visual person, right? So I, I think audio is a great way to get information. But when you're dealing with really complex technical stuff, like, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words is absolutely just a true statement for me and the way that I digest information. And so one of the things when we were first talking about it is I said, I want to try and tell the story as much as we can visually so that people can understand that story. And so that's where I think video really comes in is because there's just certain pictures, there's certain images that will help solidify that information. And, um, and, and the goal was to make it accessible. You know, as Bonnie said, that the primary audience is congressional staffers. And even though they may be, you know, these HA health associates or uh, whatever. Yeah. yeah. I'll get <laughs> Um, you know, they're, they're not doctors, they're not, you know, they're not microbiologists, they're not any of it. And so, you know, whereas it's a very technical weighty subject, I think we're trying to make it achievable. And so I think I know, Rich, you'll help me as we go through trying to digest these, these complex topics, because they are hard, right? I mean, that was one of the things that I was navigating with neurological disease with my husband. It's like, this is a, the brain is something that they don't need to understand in the healthy state, nonetheless, in a disease state and diseases that they don't know how to diagnose. And so it's just, it's an extremely complex landscape that, but there is good science and there is good evidence. It's just, you know, a matter of highlighting that. And then as, as Bonnie and the Center for Lyme Action are working for is getting more research funding in to help solve the problems. Yeah, more more research and researchers. I love that part of it, Bonnie. I love that you know you are you're you're affecting the career decisions that many young researchers are 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 making. And that was something we didn't understand here at Sick Food Camp uh, until until we actually in, interviewed uh, Dr. Mather uh, at URI. Mm -hmm. 
And when we interviewed Dr. Mather, one of the things that he shared with us was the importance of having grant money available to him so that he can do the research. Because if he didn't do a lot of research, he wouldn't get tenure. If he didn't get tenure, you know, I mean, this all sort of, you know, falls into line. I mean, we need money available for these folks to, um, you know, uh, do the research that we need them to do in order to be able to overcome this disease. And I hope this time, this five-year timeline that you outlined for us, Bonnie, is uh, is is achievable. And, and and like you, I agree that. You know, we we as difficult as it is when we're dealing with people who who are who are trying to manage this disease, if we can't define the disease and we can't define what they need with a you know a, a diagnostic tool, I'm not sure who we ultimately uh, you know target um, you know target the 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 treatment tools. So uh, hopefully we can you know, do it even faster than five years because um, yeah, it it just sucks that so many people are suffering. Um, so why don't we talk, Bonnie, a little bit now about um, your transformation, right? And how uh, how this this process of uh, advocating for folks in the Lyme community has taught you about yourself and taught you about um, your spiritual mission and and how you can serve at a higher level than you ever believed possible before you started this. Wow. <laughs> yeah. So. I, I'm not all that great talking about myself. Um, I'd rather give credit to other people. So I think that's probably the key thing that I learned is that um, is that I am really grateful for everyone around me who um, has uh, believed in the believed in this mission and and gone the extra mile to make that extra phone call or made that extra communication or attended some something so they could learn more. Um, all those people around me, the people that. Um, you know the the researchers that have that are um, you know spending their time and talent, the funders who um, are spending their, uh, their you know their treasure on on uh, on trying to find solutions, um, the 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 um, you know the 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 people that uh, that organize these foundations and it's not easy to run a foundation right you know the people like Linda Giampa at Barry Lyme Foundation I'm you know I'm insanely grateful for all the work that they put into it. Um, I'm grateful for, you know, my brother, I'm sorry that his two kids, he has two kids with Lyme disease, but I'm grateful for my brother that he, <laughs> that he and I, you know, found some, a project to work on. That's been really fun. And I'm, um, and that we found Meredith, who was our go government affairs director. And I'm grateful that, uh, you know, our friend Linda introduced us to Nicole. And now I've met you, Rich. It's been great. It has been great. And so, you know, we, we, you know, one of the things we, we've, Come to unfortunately learn here at Tick Boot Camp is there are a number of different types of Lyme wars. Uh, we learned about the Lyme wars early on in in this podcast relating to the way um, doctors interface with one another. But one of the things we've we've unfortunately observed here at Tick Boot Camp is that there are Lyme wars between uh, not for profits as well, and these organizations compete against each other and fight with one another. And one of the things that I think you should you should be given, I think, the greatest amount of credit for is you seem to have the ability to soothe the Lyme Wars down wherever they are and bring people under the umbrella of this brilliant organization you've created and use every single every single model layered together to allow this community to come together in a way that I think gives me more optimism than almost any other person that I've met here, um, you know, doing this podcast for the last four years. Um, and 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 I, I am really um, energized by the work that you've done, Bonnie. I'm really blessed to have met you and have watched you over all the years. And now I know why you're such a star 
all the dynamic work that you're doing and your ability to bring people together and and of course give credit to everyone other than other than yourself which is also a really beautiful part of your spirit so um thank you uh, for all the great work you do and thank you for joining us here at tech bootcamp it's been a pleasure rich and uh, great to talk with you too nicole